Talk Recorded live. Hello. This is William Fink, and this is Christogeny on Talkshu. It is Friday, February 25th, 2011. One-sixth of the year is just about shot. It's going quick. Sometimes I really do think that the um, the prophecy concerning the shortening of the days is, is actually um, literal, but maybe they're just going by faster as I get older. In Revelation chapters 6 through 8, over the past few weeks, we, we have seen in prophecy both the fall of Rome and the rise of Justinian. Then in chapter 9, we saw the conquests of Islam. Last week in chapters 10 and 11, we saw the period known to us as the Reformation and the independence of the Saxon peoples from the Romish church. Once these prophecies are examined and a manifestation in history are realized, it is absolutely clear that Yahshua Christ related a broad panorama of future events to John, which events have been the defining moments in the history of our race over nearly 2,000 years. Once one realizes that all these events are the defining moments in the history of the Aryan race, then we understand that the Aryan people are the people of God. As an aside, it may be observed that much of the imagery seen here in Revelation chapter 12 is not new to readers of the Hebrew Bible, nor was it new to Greeks and Romans. For instance, the Greeks had many old stories about the casting down of the serpent Typhon by Zeus or the Python by Apollo. Since it can be demonstrated that Greek origins are found in the East, and especially with the Hebrews, these stories are certainly recognizable as embellishments on the memory of the oldest Hebrew accounts. The Greeks and Hebrews of John's time must have recognized, I'm sorry, the Greeks and Romans of John's time must have recognized a lot of the imagery here from their own ancient poems. Revelation chapter 12 is yet another chapter which should dispel the silly musings of those who hold the futurist view of prophecy. If the birth of the Christ child is apparent in history, then the fulfillment of the rest of the visions here must also be apparent in history. However, most futurists, since they have ignored history, cannot see the fulfillments since they cannot properly identify the woman with the 12 stars, which truly represent the bride of Christ, the 12 tribes of Israel. Here, without further ado, we shall proceed with Revelation chapter 12. Verse 1. I'll be reading from the Christogonian New Testament. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon beneath her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, conceiving in a womb, then cries out travailing, and being in distress to give birth. Revelation chapter 12 is a very complex prophetic vision written in the simplest and most poetical terms, fully revealing both the power and the inspiration of Yahweh our God in what may clearly be considered one of the Bible's finest moments. The interpretation 
of this prophecy is threefold. First, it elucidates many of the secrets of our past. And then it describes the birth, and when I say of our past, I mean of John's past as he's writing it, the past history of our race. And then it describes the birth of the Christ and the attempt of his enemies to kill him. But it also describes the birth of the only nation ever founded upon Christian principles. And the place where the woman would once and for all be saved from that old serpent. This shall become manifest as we proceed through the chapter. The woman with the twelve stars represents the people of Israel and their tribes. In Revelation chapter 6, 6 through 8, once it is seen that the prophecy also corresponds to Daniel chapters 2 and chapter 7, it is demonstrated that the people of God are those Germanic peoples who would destroy the Roman Empire. For instance, in Daniel 2, verses 44 through 45. Revelation chapters 10 and 11 show that those same people, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, who are the two witnesses, then fulfill their testimony. The testimony of the two witnesses, which is the proof of their identity as true Israel. By choosing and adhering to the word of God, the little book which is, a, which is the Bible, over the devices and rule of men, which is the papacy in the Romish church, in that period known to us as the Reformation, when the children of Israel embraced the word of God, they proved that they were the children of Israel, the Germanic peoples. Since the birth of the children of Israel occurred sometime around the 18th century B.C., this woman does not represent Israel at any particular time, but rather she represents Israel throughout all time. So here we have post-Reformation Israel with visions of both the past and the future being revealed to us. It is manifest in other prophecies. For example, in Isaiah 30, verse 26, where it says, Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days. And that, in the day that Yahweh binds up the breach of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. Or in Isaiah 24:23, where it says, Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when Yahweh of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his ancients or his the ancients of his people, gloriously. It is manifest that the Son is often used to describe that ruling power which is ordained by Yahweh our God, while the moon is used to describe earthly powers, mere reflections of the Son. Here the woman is seen cloaked with the Son, the power of God, and standing on the moon, which symbolizes the woman's having overcome the earthly powers. The woman conceiving in the womb, being about to give birth, primarily describes the birth of the Christ. However, this is evidently a dual prophecy, for it also, I believe, describes the birth of America, the only nation in history since the Exodus, which was ever founded as a Christian nation. America was also founded out of the Reformation on Protestant principles. This cannot be taken lightly or as a mere coincidence, 
For of this event, there is very similar language in Micah chapter 4, which shall be explained below after verse 6. Revelation 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his head seven diadems, or crowns, and upon his tail, and I'm sorry, and his tail sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to the earth. As the woman represents Israel all through time, this dragon represents the satanic power, Satan, or the adversary, all through time. The seven heads and seven crowns and the ten horns all represent power and the power in the earthly realms of the adversary, and they are also described in Revelation chapters 13 and 17, where they appear as seven heads and ten horns. Ten horns are also mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, where it is speaking of earthly kings. The third of the stars of heaven represents those angels of God who joined themselves to the dragon in that original revolt, which, as it shall be demonstrated below after verse 9, is something that occurred long before John's time. These have made war with the Adamic people of God since Adam was first created here on this earth. However, these stars may also represent those of our own race, as those angels were once among the people of God, since the children of Israel are often described as the stars of heaven, who throughout time have sided with the dragon rather than with God. Since this entire prophecy has a dual fulfillment, such is also expected to be the case here. The dragon here, I'm sorry, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth in order that when she should give birth, he may devour her child. The dragon here is represented by the historical Herod the Great, for he only he attempted to murder the Christ child as soon as he was born. As we find recorded in the Gospel accounts, that Herod is a representative of the dragon, is quite profound once we discover that he was not an Israelite, but an Edomite by race. That Herod was indeed the seed of Esau is fully apparent in the pages of the Judean historian Flavius Josephus. I've mentioned this often. Where those, where it is attested to either directly or indirectly, at least five times. And because I've mentioned this often, here I will actually cite all of those instances. From Josephus's Antiquities, chapter 14, paragraph 8, or section 8, I'm sorry. But there was a certain friend of Hyrcanus, an Edomian, called Antipater, who was very rich, and in his nature, an active and a seditious man who was at enmity with Aristobulus and had differences with him on account of his goodwill to Hyrcanus. In this, in this passage, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus are of the Hasmonean 
family which ruled legitimately over the 70-week nation of Judea, Antipater is the father of Herod. Josephus' Antiquities, Chapter 14, Section 403. I'm using the Loeb Library numbering here, not Whiston's numbering. But Antigonus, by way of reply to what Herod had caused to be proclaimed, and this before the Romans and before Silo also, said that they would not do justly if they gave the kingdom to Herod, who was no more than a private man and an Edomian, i.e. a half-Jew, whereas they sought to bestow it on one of the royal family, as their custom was. So we see Josephus calls Herod a half-Jew, but we're also going to see that that's not a racial distinction. In Josephus, from his book, Wars of the Judeans, chapter 1, section 123, quote, Now those other people which were at variance with Aristobulus were afraid, upon his unexpectedly, unexpectedly obtaining the government, and especially this concerned Antipater, Herod's father, whom Aristobulus hated of old, he was by birth an Edomian, and one of the principal of that nation, the nation of Edomia, or ancient Edom, on account of his ancestors and riches and other authority to him belonging. So we see that Antipater, Herod's father, was one of the chief people of the ancient land of Edom, or nation of Edom, the Edomites. Josephus's wars... Book 1, Sections 312 and 313. And here a certain old man, the father of seven children, whose children, together with their mother, desired him to give him per them permission to go out upon the assurance and right hand that was offered to them, slew them after the following manner. He ordered every one of them to go out, and while he himself stood at the cave's mouth and slew each son of his, as he went out, his own children, Herod was near enough to see the sight, and his bowels of compassion were moved at it, and he stretched out his right hand to the old man and besought him to spare his children. Yet did he not relent at all upon what he said, but over and above reproached Herod on the lowness of his descent. This man reproached Herod on the lowness of his descent, and he slew his own wife as well as his children. And when he had thrown down their dead bodies down the precipice, he at last threw himself down after them. I guess he didn't want to be ruled over by a man such as Herod, and he reproached Herod for the lowness of his descent, because Herod was an Edomite. That's why Herod destroyed the genealogies in the temple, to cover for the lowness of his descent. Now, at Antiquities 14, Book 14, Section 403, we see that Joseph is called Herod a half-Jew. But by that, he did not mean that his mother was an Israelite, or of any other race, since here, where Josephus is speaking of Antipater, we shall see that Herod's mother was indeed also an Edomian at Antiquities Book 14, Sections 120 and 121, and I'll quote, And as he came back to Tyre, he went up into Judea also and attacked Karakea, and presently took it, and carried about 30,000 Judeans captives. He also slew Pesileus, 
who succeeded Aristobulus in his seditious practices, and that by the persuasion of Antipater, who proved to have great interest in him, and was at that time in great repute with the Edomians also, out of which nation he married a wife who was the daughter of one of their eminent men, another chief man of the Edomians, and her name was Kypris, and by whom he had four sons, Basael and Herod, who was afterward made king, and Joseph and Pheroras, and a daughter named Salome. With this, it is apparent that Herod was a full-blooded Edomite, and that by half-Jew, Josephus did not mean racially, but perhaps he used the term only as far as confession and appearance were concerned. It is fully evident, in other words, he was a he, he was only a Judean by citizenship. It is fully evident that Herod, the representative here of the dragon, was absolutely an Edomite by blood. Remember, as it is mentioned in both Malachi chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9, Yahweh God hated Esau. Paul, even referring to the Edomites as vessels of destruction. The nature of this dragon I will discuss at length below after we read chapter, verse 9 of chapter 12. Here's verse 5. And she bore a man-child. This is the woman with the 12 stars. The Catholics like to think that this is Mary. It's not Mary. The woman represents the bride because she has the 12 stars, which are the 12 tribes. And she bore a man-child, he who going to shepherd all the nations with an iron staff. He who is going to shepherd all the nations with an iron staff. And her child was carried up to Yahweh and to his throne. This is, of course, a description of Yahshua Christ, who will rule all of the Adamic nations with a rod of iron. After the tares, the goats, everything which offends, and every plant which Yahweh did not plant, are all removed, as Scripture assures us, shall happen. Psalm 118, a messianic prophecy quoted by Christ himself, where it says at verse 22, The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This psalm also assures us of the fate of all those who come up against the children of Israel, the body of Christ. Here I will read verses 10 to 12. All nations compassed about me, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them. They compassed me about, yeah, they compassed me about, but in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them. They compassed me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them. These verses, if one is adept as to who the children of Israel are, while also being aware of recent social and political trends, describe practically all of the non-Israelite peoples in the world today. The Mexicans will not be going back to Mexico, according to Psalm 118. Chinamen will not be flying out of O'Hare to return to China, according to Psalm 118. Revelations Chapter 12, verse 6. And the woman fled into the desert, where she has there a place having been prepared from Yahweh, in order that 
there they may nourish her for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. This flight of the woman and the period of time are mentioned again further on in verse 14, except that there are 1260 days. There are a time times and half a time, which we, after um, Howard Rand and Bertrand Compare, often, well, well, usually interpret as three and a half times. Three and a half times, a time being a year, is 360 times 3.5 is 1260. So we see the 1260 days in three and a half times, which is also often called 42 months in prophecy. And, and 42 months, a month being 30 days, is also 1260 days. The place having been prepared by Yahweh God must be a reference to the scriptures found in Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 2 Samuel 7.10. In these passages, it is quite evident that Yahweh God never intended Palestine to be a permanent home for his people. Let me read Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. 2 Samuel 7.10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a safe place, in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. These words of Samuel's were spoken to David in Palestine. And therefore the place which is meant by them cannot be in Palestine. The 1260 days represents the nourishing of the woman, the nations of Israel, with the gospel. The same period is the period of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. Since Yahshua Christ is the word of life, and he is also the bread of life, the true nourishment of the children of Israel can only come from the gospel. This is the message of John chapter 6. Except for the original Israelite kingdom, America is the first and only nation to have been founded as a Christian nation, or actually as a federation of Christian nations, which are the original individual states. And just as the dragon tried to kill the Christ child as soon as it was born, the international Jewish bankers have tried to destroy America ever since it was born. It should be without doubt that America is the nation foreseen in Jeremiah 3.14, where it states, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you, that's the woman, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. While there are other prophecies in Isaiah chapter 66, Daniel chapter 7 and 12 and elsewhere, which are certainly referencing this nation, it is evident that Micah chapter 4 is the most complete prophecy of America in the scripture. Here, it will be repeated in its entirety. It's not a very long chapter. 
along with some comments that I've interjected. Micah 4.1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow into it. Remember Jeremiah 3.14 above. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Of course, not all of this is fulfilled yet. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, every one in the name of his God, and we, Israel, will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. America has become a multi-religious land because of the peoples who have come here seeking our success. Verse 6, Micah 4. In that day, saith Yahweh, I will assemble herded halted, deported Israel, and I will gather herded as driven out, meaning deported Israel, and her that I have afflicted, meaning deported Israel, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. The further the children of Israel departed from Mesopotamia and the places they were deported to by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the stronger they became in the nations which they established. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion. From henceforth, even forever, Daniel 7.22 and Daniel 7.27, verse 8. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem, which is often used to describe a colony. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. This perfectly describes America today, and it must be correlated. The woman in travail must be correlated to Revelation 12, verse 2. Micah 4, verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon, right where we are, metaphor, allegorically, I should say. There shalt thou be delivered, and we will be. There Yahweh shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. This describes our position today exactly. Verse 11, 
Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. This must be correlated to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, and to those verses in Psalm 118, 10 through 12, that I just read. All these other nations are gathered against us, but we will destroy them. Verse 12. But they know not the thoughts of Yahweh, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as sheaves unto the floor, the gathering of the tares. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. That's us. For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. And I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. This surely describes America. And it is no mistake that this nation declared its freedom from the tyrannical institutions of the old world 2,520 years after the children of Israel first began to go into captivity. Speaking of the invasions of Gog and Magog into the lands of Israel in the end times, Ezekiel 38.8 says this, After many days shalt thou be visited. In the later years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people, against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste. But it is brought forth out of the nations. That describes America. Our land was barren, except for some savage roaming beasts. It was mostly barren until we settled it, irrigated it, built it up and farmed it. And we came out of all the nations of Europe. And they shall dwell safely, all of them. This surely can only describe America and what is happening in our nation at this very moment. Yet we have a promise from Yahweh our God that all of those who come into our Israelite lands in these days shall be destroyed. Note that Micah 4.13 says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, Likewise, Psalm 118, verses 10 to 12, and the Messianic prophecy, which can only be of the second advent, says, All nations compassed about, about me, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them. They compassed about, yeah, they compassed me about, but in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them. They compassed me about like bees, they are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them. This is a lesson we have to learn. We cannot be ashamed of the scripture. And with that, all one can say is, or evil to him who thinks evil of the word of Yahweh. We cannot be ashamed of the word of our God.
We cannot soft-pedal it and lie about the Word of God for the sake of people we might be afraid of offending. Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his messengers fighting with the dragon. And the dragon fought and his messengers. And they did not prevail, nor was their place found any longer in heaven. And the great dragon had been cast down. That serpent of old, who is called the false accuser and the adversary, or the devil and Satan in your King James, he who deceives the whole inhabited earth, has been cast into the earth, and his messengers have been cast down with him. Yahshua Christ said, as it is recorded at Luke 10.18, that he, quote, beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. This must have happened in the past, and in the remote past, since we see the dragon here is equated with that serpent of old, who is called the false accuser, or the devil, and the adversary, or Satan. Many commentators would like to believe that this is only describing events of 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed. However, that cannot be since by no means was Jewish influence diminished throughout the rest of the Oikumene at that time, and according to early Christian writers such as Tertullian, the Roman persecutions of Christians in the ensuing century were at the instigation of the Jews. The events of 70 AD were symbolic of the casting down of Satan, the adversaries of Christ collectively, Martin Lindstedt being one of them, where they were removed from the temple of Yahweh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. However, this was only the beginning of a process which culminated several centuries later. The binding of Satan into the pit, which will be discussed at length in Revelation chapter 20. To the contrary, the reference to that serpent of old can only be a reference to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 and the events which took place in the Garden of Eden. And therefore, Satan must have been cast down to the earth before that time. Before Adam was put into the Garden. While it is often inquired of, as to why the serpent is not equated to Satan in the Old Testament, it may be retorted that indeed it has been, but only in certain prophetic writings, such as Isaiah 27, verse 1, which talks about Leviathan in the sea, and not in explicit terms. Yahshua Christ has said that he came to reveal things which were kept secret from the founding of the world, for which see Matthew 13, 35. Here in Revelation 12.9, we see that the dragon, Satan, the devil, and the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 are all the same entity. And by this we know that the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 was surely not a literal snake, although it is readily evident as we read that account that it can't be a literal snake. In Genesis chapter 3, 
We see that there was a sexual seduction of Eve by the serpent told to us as a parable. In spite of Genesis 4.1, a verse known by Hebrew language experts to contain a gloss, Cain was not Adam's natural son. Rather, as a result of the transgression earlier in the chapter, at Genesis 3.15, we see a promise of a prolonged struggle between the seed or offspring of the serpent and the seed or offspring of the woman. Thus are Cain and Abel. The sowing of Cain by the serpent is what is meant in the parable of the wheat and the tares found in Matthew chapter 13. The Kenites, the descendants of Cain, who are never considered to be descended from Adam in Genesis chapter 4, are found again in Genesis chapter 15 and later scriptures where we see that they had mingled with the Canaanites and also with the Rephaim, who were the sons of the giants, and several other tribes who were outside of the region of the local flood and were therefore unscathed by that event. Later, Esau had taken wives of the Canaanites and also settled in Mount Horus, later called Mount Seir, the home of those ancient Canaanites known as the Hurrians or Horites. The word Hivites in the King James Version is a misreading of the Hebrew letter, the Vav rather than the Resh, and it should be Horites wherever it appears. This is how Herod the Edomite is a representative of the dragon. He was an actual descendant of both Esau and Cain, the son of the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. In Luke chapter 11, verses 45 to 52, Joshua Christ speaks of a race of fathers and sons both near and remote. I understand that the King James Version translates a generation. But when you speak of fathers and sons, both near and remote, meaning over long periods of time, you're speaking of many generations, so you can only be speaking of a race. And that race was responsible, as Christ tells us in those verses, for the blood of all the prophets from Abel unto Zechariah. Only the descendants of Cain can be held responsible for the blood of Abel. In later scriptures, we see Edomites, such as that Doeg of 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22, who follow down that same path. As it is manifest from the history of Josephus, the Gospel of John, the prophecy of Malachi, the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapters 34 and 35, and the letters of Paul, many of the priests and leaders of Judea, whom Christ addressed, were actually Edomite converts subsumed into Judean polity from circa 130 B.C., who had come to think of themselves as Judeans, which Josephus describes in Antiquities, Book 13. From these people, the Jews of today are descended, in part, because the Jews have mixed with many other races also. But they've descended from these Edomites, these Edomites of the time of Christ. In John chapter 8, 
Yahshua told them, You are the sons of a father, the false accuser, or the devil, and you wish to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer and a troll from the beginning and did not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from of his own devices because he is a liar and the father of it. So indeed we see that he is talking to descendants of Cain. Since only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. Also, Cain could not have been an Adamite, being a devil. Judas Iscariot, who can be shown also to have descended from Edomites, was also called a devil by Yahshua. In the Garden of Eden, from the account given in Genesis chapter 2, we see that once Adam was created, Yahweh planted a garden and made to grow out of the ground every tree that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. But then, two allegorical trees are also mentioned as being in this garden, in Genesis 2.9. These are the tree of life, which is Christ and his race. Note where he says, I am the vine and ye are the branches. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This later tree, therefore, must also represent a race of people, a race of people who at one time knew good over on the side of God, and who then chose to experience or to know evil, which is rebellion from God. And they were already in existence here on the earth when Adam was placed into the garden. This can only refer to those original fallen angels whom the Apostle Jude described as having kept not their first estate. These angels that sinned are also discussed in Peter's second epistle in chapter 2. The Enoch literature, which Jude, the Apostle, quoted from at length in his one short epistle, which is also found among the Dead Sea Scrolls and in other sources, explains that these angels had gone out and mingled their seed with hundreds, even thousands, of all sorts of animals, in addition to the daughters of men, as the account is found in Genesis chapter 6. For the purpose of miscegenation and corruption of the creation of God. These accounts in Enoch and the Book of Giants and other apocryphal literature these accounts attribute to such acts the creation of demons, monsters, and bastards, and the origin of evil spirits. The perpetrators of these acts cannot be the sons of Cain only, because in the Enoch literature they are called the Watchers, just as the angels are also called Watchers by the prophet Daniel. See Daniel chapter 4. For the Enoch literature that I'm citing, see the Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by Wise, Abeg, and Cook, HarperCollins Publishers, page 290 to 295. While the original angels may not be with us today, their descendants certainly are. And both the Kenites and the Rephaim, or giants, of our scripture are derived from them and therefore the Canaanites and the Edomites later, who mixed with the Kenites and the Rephaim. 
and their descendants are still among us today. They're known as Jews. Some of them are known as Arabs. And some of them are known by other names because of the people they've mixed with along the course of time. Yet, while this war in heaven is certainly an account of events which took place in antiquity, it is also a dual prophecy, having an application here in the present age, which is further evident from the context and placement of this paragraph within the narrative of the chapter. The description of Michael and his messengers fighting with the dragon, and the dragon fought and his messengers. That description, that passage, may be correlated to Daniel 12, verse 1, where it states, quote, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. That must be a reference to the book of life. This is a reference to the last days. Michael is from a Hebrew term, which is generally interpreted as a question to mean, who is like God? In this age, there have been many Michaels. The American founders, Andrew Jackson, Kaiser Wilhelm, Tsar Nicholas, and especially Adolf Hitler, who have stood up, all of them, to defend the children of Israel against the seed of the dragon. And this has indeed caused a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even until this same time. And tens of millions of Christians have been slain in recent wars, in Russia and Germany especially, because of it. Most of these deaths have been caused by the vanity of the people and the intrigues of the international Jewish banking cabal, which manipulates them, which shall be discussed at greater, much greater length here in later chapters of the Revelation, if Yahweh God be willing. These Michaels have all failed because no man is like God, and because vengeance belongs to him alone, for which reason see the parable of the wheat and the tares, that only he and his appointed angels can remove the evil ones from our society and cast Satan out of heaven once again, this time for good and forever, because their fate awaits them in the lake of fire. Revelations 12, verse 10. And I heard a great voice saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God has come, and the authority of his anointed, because the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. He accusing them before our God day and night. The kingdom of God was promised after that first rebellion of the angels with the establishment of the first man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. But it shall be fulfilled with the last Adam, Joshua Christ himself, at his manifestation. The first promise of this is found in Genesis 3.23, where it says, 
Quote, now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The Greek word diabolos is an accuser. And by implication, it is a false accuser. As it is often translated in the Christogenian New Testament. One example of this trait of the adversary, this trait meaning the adversary or Satan's trait as a false accuser, is found in Job, in the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, where it says, Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Has thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and the substance of his increase in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. This is Satan telling Yahweh that if Job lost his possessions and his loved ones, that Job would curse Yahweh to his face. That is a false accusation, as the book of Job proves. Today, there are countless examples of this trait of Satan, the adversary, as the false accuser of our brethren. The so-called Holocaust is a prominent example. It's a false accusation against the entire German race. And they prevailed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they had not loved their lives even to death. Christians shouldn't care about their lives. For this reason rejoice, heavens and those dwelling in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the false accuser has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has a short time. The acceptance of Yahshua Christ and the keeping of his commandments, which are a necessary expression of that acceptance, are the only means of preservation for the Aryan children of Israel. As the blood of the literal Lamb of Passover kept their ancient ancestors from the angel of death, which slew all of the firstborn of Egypt in the Exodus. So it is today that Israelites must cloak themselves with Christ the Lamb, and they shall live. This is the meaning of the allegory of the whole armor of God, God, which Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6. And when the dragon saw that he had been cast down into the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the man-child. The dragon was cast down to the earth before the creation of Adam. And the result was the seduction and the result was the seduction of Eve and the proclamation of eternal enmity between the two disparate groups found in Genesis three fifteen. The dragon was cast down to earth again in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. The dispersed Jews were later behind all the persecutions of Christians until the time of Constantine.
However, once Christianity became recognized by Rome, the dragon was locked away in a pit, which shall be discussed at length at Revelation chapter 20. The dragon was again cast down to the earth with the Reformation. When it became evident that the Jewish popes would not have power over the main of the children of Yahweh, the Saxon peoples. From that time, the Saxon peoples, who with the help of their God, freed themselves from the beast tyrants, which is a topic of discussion for the next chapter, Revelation chapter 13, but persecutions from the dragon. We freed ourselves from these tyrants, and we've had nothing but persecutions from the dragon in the 30 years. Bill's phone may have just died. Uh, we'll wait for him to call back. With all of this, it might become apparent that in order to understand the Revelation completely, we have to understand the Revelation as a whole. So when we cover Revelation chapter 20, and when we cover Revelation chapter 13, chapter 12 will become, that the interpretation of chapter 12 will become clearer to us. Verse 14, and they had given to the woman the two wings of the great eagle in order that she may fly into the desert into her place, where she is nourished there for a time and times and half of the time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent had cast from his mouth water as a river after the woman in order that he may have carried her off by the river. And the earth assisted the woman and the earth opened its mouth and gulped down the river which the dragon had cast from his mouth. And the dragon was angered by the woman and went to make war with those remaining of her offspring who keep the commandments of Yahweh and have the testimony of Yahshua. And he stood upon the sand of the sea. This desert place is another description of what is described in verse 6. And the woman, Israel, had fled into the wilderness of Europe where she received the gospel, and it took nearly that long for the Saxon, Israel, and related peoples to convert to Christianity, returning to the God that had cast them off for their sin many centuries before. The water 
which the serpent had cast from its mouth, were all of the other races which the Jews had brought to fight against the Aryan peoples of Europe and the Near East. First, there were the Arab invasions, which were instigated by the Jews, especially the invasion of Gothic Spain. This story is well told in the book, The Plot Against the Church, by Maurice Pinier. The destruction of the formerly white lands of Mesopotamia, the Near East, Northern Africa, and the Levant. Then there were the Turkic invasions, and the Turks invaded the Byzantine lands at the behest of the Jewish and Arab merchants. Then there were the invasions of the Mongols, and Martin Luther had written that it was the Jews in each city of Eastern Europe who had betrayed those cities by opening their gates to the Golden Horde. All of these invasions of Christian Europe ultimately failed. And by the time that America began to be settled, the Jew could no longer bring the world's goat nations against Christendom until these recent days when they have done it by another means, under the guise of egalitarianism and multiculturalism. This is yet, this is in fulfillment of many other prophecies, such as Isaiah 56, 9 to 11, and Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 30. These last wars which the dragon has made with the woman had been from the inside, first by manipulating our Saxon Christian nations to fight against each other, and then by convincing us to flood ourselves with our enemies, which is exactly what is happening at this very moment. The promise of the Christ is that we destroy them all. In the end, the Aryan peoples of God shall prevail. Thank you. I'm sorry I was cut off. I don't know what happened. My Skype cut out. This podcast will be available within a couple hours on org, along with my full comments. I will see you next week here with Revelation chapter 13. Praise Yahweh and good night.